0: As reluctant as I am to say it, I think we really should talk about this, this horrible thing that's been going on in Maine the last couple of days since this mass shooting in Lewiston. You know, I was struck by the congressman from Maine, Jared Golden, coming out in the wake of this horrific shooting and saying, well, OK, now, now I'm going to ban assault weapons. And I, I was conflicted. I don't know what you guys think, but like I felt, OK, on the one hand, it's never too late to do the right thing. On the other hand, was this really the thing that caused you to realize that these guns were a problem?
1: I mean, do we have to wait till every single member of Congress has experienced this personally in their district? And Susan called this out on what used to be called Twitter. And I thought it was really good to point out that mm. somebody can change their mind That's on true. this issue. That's true. That's um, true. But I, it honestly—I'm I'm, I'm worrying about this because I, I have a child who lives up in Maine right now. Right. And I'm not worried that she's in personal danger But... The whole whole area where she is is in lockdown. Yeah. And, and it's just unthinkable what happened and that they have these kinds of weapons in the hands of someone who's so mentally ill and that there was not even the ability of all the people around him who were concerned to stop it yeah. because there's no real red flag law that, that, that can take a gun like that out of someone's hands. And,
2: and I mean, we know this, but the craziest fact of all is that the polls overwhelmingly show that Americans are desperate for change on these things.
1: And it's not alone on that issue after issue after issue. You see Congress paralyzed and in a place that's not where the vast majority of voters are. But it it doesn't change. But,
2: you know, this is, I mean, you and I've talked about this recently a little bit. There are these moments, and it's particularly in the courts... Where you've actually seen some movement, you've seen that courts have been willing to pierce what had been this impregnable shield against gun companies, particularly in Connecticut, the Sandy Hook parents managed to actually get something through the courts that nobody thought was possible. I know that it's, you know, it's hard in a moment like this to imagine it. But There was a time when the idea of gay marriage was utterly inconceivable to vast numbers of Americans. And yet you were able to ultimately change the law. So I can't despair. I can't despair. Gets us
1: right to the new Speaker of the House.
2: Here we are. Gay marriage. And
1: guns. And guns. By the way, he
2: actually linked. He
0: actually has linked. There's a clip among many of the clips now circulating. He actually linked at one point the sexual revolution uh, of the '60s and gun shootings.
2: Yeah, sexual anarchy is what he called it. All right, we're going to get to sexual anarchy (laughs) in just a moment. Welcome to the political scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined by my colleagues Susan Glasser and Jane Mayer. Good morning to you both.
1: Hi, Evan. Good morning.
2: Over the last year on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the metastasis of the big lie, the totally false belief in Republican circles that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. It is, of course, a fantasy. But this week, that strain of magical thinking collided with reality in two big and very different ways. First... Some of Donald Trump's most loyal associates have abruptly renounced their crackpot election theories in court, nearly all in the course of pleading guilty in an effort to avoid harsher sentences in their cases. The second reality cuts the other way. It's the genuinely remarkable ascent of Mike Johnson to Speaker of the House. If you had to Google Johnson's name this week... You're not alone. Even his Republican colleague Susan Collins in the Senate didn't recognize his name. But Johnson was a key figure in the plot to overturn the 2020 election results. And it seems that this may have actually helped him to secure the speakership. So why are some of the Big Lie's biggest believers renouncing it in court while others are riding it to greater heights of power in Congress? What on earth is going on? Uh, What does this tell us really about the role of this persistent myth in the Republican Party? So let's let's start with Mike Johnson's election as speaker. He was elected after 21 days, the longest period that the House was speakerless while in session in U.S. history. But before we get into who he is and what he believes, here's your moment to announce that you were prescient on this man. Did either of you see this coming? Did you spend a lot of time with Mike Johnson? <laughs> and
0: anyone who tells you that they knew Mike Johnson was going to be speaker, including Mike Johnson, before Wednesday <laughs> is not
2: telling the truth.
1: <laughs> I mean, I have to admit, I've even been down to his district wow. not that long ago. I was in Shreveport, Good Louisiana. credentials. That's good. I had no idea, even when I was in his district, who Mike Johnson was, I have to admit, let alone thinking that he was going to be the Speaker of the House.
2: Well, it doesn't help that his name seems like something that ChatGPT kicks out as a, you know, politician from Louisiana, Mike Johnson. Go ahead. Sorry, Susan.
1: Well, no, you mentioned
0: Susan Collins Googling him. The most remarkable data point to me is that uh, when he woke up on Wednesday morning, this is a guy who had never even met Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican Amazing. leader. Uh, by the end of the day, he's second in line. For the succession to the presidency, still hasn't even met his Republican because you know what he wouldn't have raided a meeting with Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell wouldn't have taken a meeting (laughs) with him before Wednesday. This is one of those hilarious. I feel like it's a scene from Veep uh, or something. (laughs) But actually, the Prime Minister of Australia was scheduled to have a meeting on Capitol Hill, part of a state visit. Right, you have to meet you know all the branches of government (laughs) with the. Speaker of the House, right? Like name TK as in to come. So that was the very first thing. <laughs> named TK. That That's Mike really Johnson amazing. did. And name I actually TK. spoke. I, I ran into the ambassador of Australia who was in the meeting along with the prime minister. And he said, Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd and I said, "So, what was it like? You know, you're the only person who's met him." <laughs> and he said, "He didn't say much and he seemed, quote, stunned." By the way, he is- met Mitch McConnell yesterday after that meeting and President Biden. So, the Prime Minister of Australia actually met our new Speaker of the House before the Senate Republican leader or the President of the United States. Amazing. I mean, but
1: isn't that really, in a way, why he finally was chosen. He's a man without a past. It reminded me so much of, of you know, looking for a wife for for Prince Charles. They needed to find someone really young, <laughs> a virgin who had, you know, no past. And so they've chosen, we've now got somebody, you know, I mean, at least but not, he's a, not but, a virgin. The, the truth is, I was about to Let's say, get he that. has a Let's hidden past that Go many ahead. people... There's there is an a book to be written. You mean or – yeah. Many, I mean, We're I mean, getting sure. it in real
0: time.
2: But yeah, yeah. Else, hold on. let's is, let's, okay. let's For okay. folks <laughs> – I know we're getting excited. This is a big deal in our world. But uh, Jane, wh- how would you actually describe <laughs> Speaker Johnson? What type of Republican is he? Uh, what are the most important things we need to know about what he believes?
1: Well, he is the hard right – Politician that the far right in this country would just they couldn't dream of a better mm-hmm. representative. He is the face of Christian nationalism and Republican extremism, and most importantly, part of the reason he's there too of MAGA. He is a Trumpist, um, and that's why he finally got the nod because someone right ahead of him um, did not pass muster with Trump and got knocked out for that reason. And he got the nod from Trump. So he is, you know, in the eyes of critics, he's a he's a Trump puppet. But he is also a man with his own convictions that are as far right as they come in American politics.
0: Yeah. Let's tick through some of the things we've learned about Mike Johnson in the last few days, because it is interesting. If anyone thought he uh, didn't have uh, a book, it turns out there's
2: a ton material. to be
0: written uh, and already has been sort of earthed up about Mike Johnson. So he is a constitutional lawyer, son of a firefighter from Louisiana, never really had a competitive race against a Democrat. So that's part of the reason I think nobody knew any of this stuff. He is conservative. He, in fact, has what's called a covenant marriage Uh, which basically, as I understand it, means it's harder to get a divorce. Interestingly, I noted in some of the background material that he is actually a child of divorce and has spoken about that as one of the reasons uh, why he has taken such a conservative turn in his own life. He is a creationist. He is a climate change denier. He is very much a sort of America firster when it comes to uh, America's role in the world. For example, he voted against Ukraine aid uh, even last year in the immediate aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And uh, he is what you might call sort of a skeptic. He has said many inflammatory things that the, you know, good folks on the platform formerly known as Twitter, have been circulating. Some of the clips that caught my attention were one a House hearing where he talked about, uh, wasn't it a shame that uh, uh, women were not bearing more, quote, able-bodied workers? And that was the reason that actually uh, Republicans had to go after Social Security. You know, uh, he's not only strongly anti-abortion, but that's been one of his major causes. He sponsored a national uh, abortion ban piece of legislation. He uh, One of the things I noticed that the Biden and Harris campaign was tweeting out was a an old tweet of his from his congressional account saying that uh, cheerleading basically for the Dobbs decision and saying and, you know, hooray, no more abortion. And if you're in Louisiana and you get caught uh, performing an abortion, you're going to serve hard labor. Yeah. Hard labor. That's what he said. So, and you know, Gay,
1: also we must talk about his position, I think, on on marriage equality. He's absolutely dead set against it. That's when right. the, and, and even back in 2003 when the Supreme Court legalized homosexual Acts between people as a matter of of civil rights. Um, he was he came out right against it, and in in Louisiana tried to pass legislation to ban it.
2: I'll so. read a, a little snippet that he wrote in the Shreveport local paper, the Times, Yay Local News, uh, giving us the important record of his comments. "Quote: Experts project that homosexual marriage is the dark harbinger of chaos and sexual anarchy that could doom." Even the strongest republic—that was Mike Johnson, now Speaker of House.
0: Well, it's I mean, interesting. So maybe our collective doom. Uh, you know, this is a, a very apocalyptic, almost mm. revelation-style view. So maybe the decline and fall of one of our branches of government is uh, is actually part of the biblical prediction here. But but he's.
1: But I do think. I mean, we. You know, we make light of it. But the truth is that there is. The staunchest block of voters behind Trump are white evangelicals. And when you look at sort of the breakdown and many of them have somehow come to the conclusion that Trump is basically divinely divine ordained. Yeah. And, and and if you look at what Mike Johnson was just saying yesterday, yeah. that, that he is basically divinely ordained.
0: To your point, Jane, he actually said in an interview that he uh, – doesn't think there should be a separation between church and state, and incorrectly said, well, that's not in the Constitution, which— of course, it is. And I think that gets at the core of what is the, the worldview of this unknown person who is now uh, one of the most powerful people in the U.S. government. But what's really striking is a point that you made earlier, which is that all of the stuff that we're talking about is fascinating. It's revealing about what's the center of gravity, politically speaking, in the House Republican Conference. It tells you about kind of the political base of the Republican Party today. It tells you about how. Extreme many of the views are that you might not even realize a lot of members of Congress have. And yet, it's not really the reason that he became the Speaker of the House, which actually has to do with someone, Donald Trump, who probably doesn't believe almost any of the things that we've just been talking about that are core beliefs of Mike Johnson. What Donald Trump believes in is the theology of himself. (laughs) And in his theology, which has now become the de facto ideology of the Republican Party, especially the Republican conference in the House of Representatives, his litmus test, which he's now succeeded in getting Republicans essentially to endorse as their litmus test, is did you or did you not try to block the election of Joe Biden as president of the United States in January of 2021. And what's interesting here is that two thirds of the House Republican conference actually voted against the certification of Biden's election. Uh, on that horrible day that we all remember so well, say but that again.
1: I mean, for two, thirds, was two, two thirds. Two thirds. This was after they literally walked the, over the, the broken glass the in
0: the U.S. Capitol itself. And by and 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 I should point out that even Kevin McCarthy, the late lamented Kevin McCarthy, Speaker, perceived as more of an establishment type, uh, he also
2: joined in. I will add too that two people who opposed. Uh, the uh, effort to overturn the election, then fell in line. People like Chip Roy of Texas. So this is an important point that that, that the unanimous vote for this guy, Mike Johnson, includes Republicans who for a brief period of time uh, opposed this effort and have now fallen in completely. Ken
0: Buck, in fact, uh, actually went. He went on like basically every national media outlet over the last few weeks and said, we can't have an election denier as the Speaker of the House, and I'm going to vote against that. And yet he went ahead and he went along with Mike Johnson. But my point was that, you know, the bulk of this conference voted not to certify Biden's election. But there are very few who played leading roles. That's right. And one of them who briefly emerged as a candidate for speaker, and that was Jim Jordan. But he is a, you know, almost the opposite of Johnson in the sense that he's this very high profile figure, polarizing, divisive. He's almost, you know, among those who pay attention, he's a household name. And it seemed like it was that nature of Jordan as being such a lightning rod that caused some Republicans uh, to say, wait a minute, are we sure we want this guy? So they turned then to Johnson, who essentially had the same record as Jim Jordan, but without the kind of Fox TV news fame. Uh, he also wears a jacket. So he's, you know,
1: Jim Jordan in a blazer. I think the glasses are the thing that actually transforms his look. Yeah. That the sort of... Kind of slightly tortoiseshell, y horn rimmy. No, kind those of have become professorial glasses. It's, it's, I, it's, yeah, it's like they, a they, studious. They become, I, and I think this is part of his his superpower is steel fist in velvet glove. Um, Soft spoken, affable, congenial, smiling but just unrelentingly hardline. Well, what's um, and, and being a constitutional lawyer, I yeah. think you cannot underestimate what that background of his is as having been a lawyer for what's now called Alliance Defending Freedom, which is this growing power in the legal world, an organization that sets itself up as the anti or opposite of the ACLU about sort of taking biblical values and enforcing them through the courts on the rest of the country. And, you know, he's someone who's a smooth operator, basically, and knows how to argue.
2: I think it's important, too, to recognize that, you know, I think if people were following politics two decades ago, they would have known about neocons. And one of the things that you've helped us do, Jane, I think is focus on theocons as a new fact of our lives, sort of these theocratic believers uh, who fuse the politics, the conservative movement with the Trumpist techniques and the Trumpist kind of nihilism. That is a, a really meaningful new fact in our politics that doesn't often get pulled out. I mean, and you've written about it so too, clearly.
1: about the extreme right. I mean, for people who are listening and want to know more about this, there's some really good writers on this hmm. subject. I wanted to just bring to the Like, who, to the who light. do you think is Well, so there is, following. when you mentioned Theocons, there's a very good book called The Theocons mm-hmm. by Damon Linker, who was part of the Catholic right and still is a Catholic conservative, but he kind of tells about the inside of what it's like. I think um, the people who I have learned so much from include um, uh, Anne Nelson, Sarah Posner, Katherine Stewart—they've all written fantastic books on this—and—and and, you know, it seemed like a niche area, but. I would say now that we have a speaker from this and a very hardcore alliance with this group with Trumpism, it's really worth learning. And more that's about hugely
2: it. valuable news you can use, folks.
0: But I think it's really important because Trump disdains these people and yet is transactional enough to have understood that that was the core of who voted in the Republican Party and who he needed to. So I mean, can understand Trump's willingness to go along with these folks much more so than the the fusion of this kind of professional sanctimony uh, with this
1: incredible hypocrisy that's really what is interesting well, we're, to me we're is like be rustling i wrestling mean, with that
2: <laughs> I have to say as long as we are on this but, I, we have to move to the oh, Okay ahead, just
1: got to say one other thing about that that unholy alliance which is just <laughs> that <laughs> it was fused in in 2016, when when I think when 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 Trump handed off the naming of the Supreme Court mm. to the Federalist Society, which point. promised to put the judges on the court that this faction wanted to see,
2: fascinating. And they, yeah.
1: they, they, they the the term they came up with for Trump was some of them called Trump God's wrecking ball, and they knew he wasn't one of them, <laughs> but he was going to wreck the the obstacles of the 20th century modernism that they wanted to knock out of the way in order to bring us back to biblical inerrancy. Right, a wrecking the
2: wrecking ball being a 13th century piece of technology. Let's remember. <laughs>
0: well, I did see there was the you know our our colleagues on the humor side of uh, the New Yorker, I believe, put out the uh, the piece that called him the very best House Speaker of the 17th century. <laughs> <laughs>
2: When we come back, how the big lie is playing out in the courts and the future of this falsehood in the Republican Party. The other half of the news this week on the uh, 2020 election lie is, of course, what happened in court in Georgia. And I I think in some ways this is almost... Uh, as surprising as the uh, elevation of Mike Johnson, the idea that you now have three lawyers aligned with Trump who have um, begun to cave, collapse, fall like dominoes. In the space of a week, you had Kenneth Chesebro, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis. You know, these are uh, particularly in Ellis's case. These are people who were on TV in the most impassioned terms declaring their belief in uh, Donald Trump's false claims to have won the election. And by the way, I will add that CNN has reported that prosecutors have discussed potential plea deals with at least six others in that case. So to both of you guys, what or who in this has sort of surprised you most? Was there uh, one of these uh, plea deals that made you say, well, now actually maybe this thing is beginning to turn?
0: Well, remember that the theory of the case in Georgia was uh Fani Willis, the DA, had this idea from the very beginning that she was going to frame this as a as a RICO trial, as a as a almost a, a mob trial and roll up together the lower ranking figures in this alleged conspiracy, along with the boss, the big guy himself, Donald Trump. And always the the notion was that you would pressure some of the lower ranking figures to plead guilty, to turn, to provide evidence on those higher up the chain. And so, in part, we're seeing that theory of the case uh, kick in. Now, one question, of course, is how directly does any of this testimony that they've now secured with these uh, plea bargains, how directly does that implicate Donald Trump or some of those in his inner circle? We can talk about the somewhat different strategy that's being pursued in federal court by uh, the federal prosecutor, Jack Smith, because to me, actually, the biggest... Biggest potential development does involve Trump's former White House right. Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, and his apparent cooperation with prosecutors in the federal case. Because I think that, you know, Mark Meadows was in the room for just about everything. He was Trump's key advisor. He, the prospect of him testifying against Trump, even if he did it in federal court, he would also presumably then have that testimony in the state court as well. To me, that's something that would directly implicate Trump. Whereas these other three lawyers, I'm sort of, still agnostic on the question of how much that would actually hurt the former president.
2: There was some talk at the time that Sidney Powell's, uh, the nature of her plea deal might not impact him. Jenna Ellis, however, has had a lot of one-on-one dealing, so it's possible that she may be in a greater position to provide. What, what's your sense of this, Jane, in terms of what uh, what matters here?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, what we're seeing is that this these three got in some ways, relatively light sentences. And so we've only seen one side of the equation. They got off kind of light. What did they give in exchange for that? And, mm. and that is in a black box at this point. I mean, I would think that each of them has... Um, some important information to offer in exchange for those kinds of light sentences, or they wouldn't have gotten off the way that they did. Um, I, I, I agree with Susan that that basically Meadows— if you thought Cassidy Hutchinson knew a lot, think about her boss, Mark Meadows. Um, he, he's mm-hmm. in a position to know everything, um, but— But will he tell? I mean, we did a whole show on Mark Meadows and how incredibly slippery he is. And... You know, there's a, a phrase that's being bandied around about him, which is called the the, the Mark Meadows two-step. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he, he just when you think he's coming forward with something, he steps backwards with it. So I don't know whether he's really going to deliver, but I do think it's fascinating just if we all step back to yeah. look at this thing and think, huh, so you have to lie about the election to rise in power if you're a Republican in the House. Mm. You absolutely have to pledge fealty to the idea that Trump, one, which is a lie. But when you face potential sentencing in a court yourself, the truth finally comes out. That's what it takes. It takes peril for someone being locked up, possibly. That's the only thing scarier to them than Donald Trump.
2: It is fascinating. You're right there. We've seen over the course of just over, really in the last couple of weeks, this very clear demarcation of these different realms. It's almost, you know, epistemic that you can lie in a book completely. Mark Meadows in his book, of course, goes on a tremendous, glorious length about how much he's still believes Donald Trump won the race. But then when it you know the little insights we're getting into how he may have talked to federal prosecutors, it's clear that he says from the beginning, from the very moment that Donald Trump came out in the middle of the night and said, I've actually won this election, that Mark Meadows said that that was a dishonest claim. I mean, we'll have to see what actually eventually proves to be the case. But the court itself and you know it goes back to this is a, again a 13th century instrument that it it takes the, the threat of physical confinement evidently, Susan, to make these guys say what they actually believe.
0: What an incredible juxtaposition it was this week. On Wednesday morning, you had the visual of the former Trump lawyer, Janet Ellis, weeping weeping in court in Georgia on camera as she read a statement uh essentially saying oh my goodness i had no idea you know these these older more experienced lawyers i followed their view i didn't know you know this is a woman who had basically gotten her job by going on fox news and lying to the american public about the election donald trump watched her on television was a big fan of hers and uh, you know that's the kind of legal quote-unquote, defense that he wanted after the 2020 election, right? So it's not a crime to lie to the American public, dot, 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 except when it is. And so on the very same day she's in the court reading out the statement, you have one of the most important architects. That's the phrase that The New York Times used when it went back and reexamined sort of how did January 6th come to be that they used for the then-obscure Congressman Mike Johnson ascending to power the same day. So, Jane, your point, I think, is, is really an important one. Lying on behalf of Donald Trump has become actually the essential prerequisite to power in the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. At the same time, it is an imminent cause of potentially going to jail if you keep lying for Donald Trump under oath.
2: There's one other question we didn't get to that I think is important, actually, because people will be wondering, now that you have a Speaker of the House who is a practiced, accomplished election denier, how should we think about the impact on 2024? Does that mean that he actually is going to be in a position to – uh, perpetuate and advance that, uh, assuming that Donald Trump denies losing the election in 24?
0: Well, it is, I think, a, a relevant question, which tells you in and of itself uh, a lot about the state of our politics. Uh, Joe Biden was actually asked this question the other day. He he cut it off with a very curt no. Right. But look, the Speaker of the House has a lot of power, but this is something where the procedures are spelled out in, in some real detail in the electoral Count Act. The first and most important thing to note is that it's the new Congress, not the old Congress, that meets on January six, according to this law, to uh, uh, receive the certification of the results from the electoral. College. Let's just pause on
2: it, Be very clear, meaning that in effect, that by the time that they gather uh, for the equivalent of January 6th in twenty twenty five, it will be
0: January six. It's a, by law; it's stipulated to meet on that day. The new Congress will already have been sworn in. What that means is that if Republicans keep the House, uh, keep control of the House. There is a chance that Johnson could still be the speaker. Uh, But right now, uh, frankly, the chaos and dysfunction of the last few weeks has made it even more likely that Republicans may lose the House in 2024. So let's just sort of put an asterisk to that question and point out that if it's the uh, new House, if it's Democrats who've won back control of the House, uh, it will be a Democratic Speaker. But if the Republicans retain the majority and Johnson or someone else like him, another 2020 election denier is the Speaker, you could have a situation where there's a problem. Now, it's hard to see exactly what you would be able to do. Uh, essentially, this is a matter of if you have the votes, you have
1: the votes. But well, there is one nightmare scenario that um, I have seen written about. I think Jesse Wegman at mm. the New York Times wrote about this, which is the possibility that if there is a third party in the election that steals uh, enough votes so that neither part, neither the Democrats nor Republicans have a majority of the electoral votes, at that point. The election goes to the House, um, and at that point, there really is an opportunity for the Speaker of the House to have a tremendous amount of power.
2: Meaning that if there, if no single party has achieved an absolute majority, right, then it would go straight to the House. Then it goes to the House. Well, one thing, that, which is a nightmare scenario, I will tell you one thing that is encouraging a bit, I think, if you're interested in the long arc of, of politics and, and legal reform, is that the the reforms to the Electoral Count Act did establish this baseline that said that you have to get 20 percent of both chambers to agree to object to the certification of the votes. And then you'd have to get a majority of both chambers to vote to sustain the objection. That is one thing that did come out of uh, of January. 6th. And for that reason, I think it's worth noting that there are these there have been reforms. Um, there have been reforms. So. Right.
0: Now, I, I guess the fear would be, if you have a Republican speaker, just like on January 6th, we never anticipated what Trump and his team actually did on January 6th, which is to take something which we saw as a purely ceremonial exercise and to say, no, actually, that's imbued with potential substance. So, like, I wonder, what are the moves that we haven't talked about? What are the possibilities? Could they say, well, these uh, certificates from the state are fraudulent? Uh, and we're going to you know, subject that to a simple majority vote in the House, for example, or we're going to delay the proceedings. Remember, one of the things that some of Trump's supporters wanted to happen on January 6th was uh, to actually just put off the count, to delay it a few weeks past the January 20th uh, inauguration date. What if the Speaker refuses to convene the House or something like that? Now, again, I don't really know, but I, I'm— aware in a way that I wasn't before 2020 in the
1: possibility of the unknown unknown as opposed to the known unknown. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like if we've learned anything, it's that that you can't rule out anything.
2: That's for sure. Well, guys, I have to say this has been a week that has been uh, difficult emotionally, personally, politically in all kinds of ways, but it is a great uh, tonic to be able to come and hash it out with you at the end. So thanks to you both. Thanks, Jane. And thanks, Susan.
1: So great to be with you. Yeah, great to be with you guys.
2: This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alison Leighton Brown. We'll be back next week, and thank you for listening.